Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, retail sales came in this morning uh, a little bit better than expected. Uh, January came in at plus 0.2%. The consensus was flat, 0.0%. That's certainly an improvement from December when that number came in at minus 1.6%. So to help us dig into the retail sales and all things retail, we're still in retail earnings period, believe it or not. Uh, we bring in our friend Seema Shah. Seema is a consumer analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Seema, welcome. Thank you. Um, what did you see in the retail uh, report that came out this morning? Um, the biggest thing was that you mentioned that was December was revised down 40 basis points to minus 1.6. So we've already heard from the retailers that reported that December was really bad. We had two weeks of the government shutdown. January did beat expectations, but I don't know that it's that good considering December was revised down. So there might have been some pent up demand and big categories continued to be weak. Uh, furniture, autos. Um. Seema, what would you say to people who say that these numbers are backward looking and don't really tell us anything that we don't know? Um, I, particularly in this case where we're two months behind, I would say that's absolutely true. Um, but I'm still surprised that people are surprised <laughs> about the the way the numbers are going. Because if you've listened to any of the calls, December was really bad across the board. Okay, so was it just December? Or do you get the sense that there is something sort of deeper here, a weakness that could be seen throughout the year? Um, definitely, I think there could be because we're seeing a slowdown in the housing market. That doesn't necessarily affect... Home Depot and Lowe's so much as they're focused on renovation. But again, if the house home price appreciation seems to plateau, people might be less inclined to feel wealthy. Same with the stock market. And I'd also say that um, the fact that tax refunds are expected to be lower than they were and delayed, I think that could especially hit the low end where that little bit of money boost spending. Lisa, what, what I like about Seema's research is I think she's consistently had a more conservative yes. call on the consumer than you, what you'll read out on the street. And that's a, yes. it's a great way to balance kind of what we're seeing out there. So Seema, we're, we're, you're always in earnings season. It seems yes. like your companies are always kind of reporting. You have a strange yes. schedule, but you're, you're through the majority of them. What did you yes. take away from this quarter's results? And maybe more importantly, kind of what the, the tone of the outlook is for a lot of these folks. Right. I would say across the board, if you exclude the mask guys who really took the bulk of the share over holiday uh, and continue to seem very bullish, I would say the bulk of the retailers from department stores, even to some like Home Depot and Lowe's, they had more tempered feeling about what's coming going forward. I think that even the home centers, while they're bullish, it's certainly not as strong as it was last year. And I think you're seeing for the department stores and sort of those other specialty retailers competition continues to pressure them. So I guess I'm wondering with the breakdown of online versus brick and mortar, mm -hmm. if you're seeing the bifurcation continue to increase or whether you're seeing stabilization, in other words, some sort of, uh, you know, gains being made among the healthiest of the brick and mortar right. and, you know, a stabilization in the rate of the uh, right. of the increase in online use. Well, online use does continue to go ra grow rapidly, but the ones that have an established and I guess I would say a good infrastructure in their store base are the ones that are seeing the biggest gains because they're able to have buy online, pick up in store and other different fulfillment services that could help mitigate the gross margin pressure from online growth. But I still think that online as a whole and mobile commerce continues to grow. But it's still, again, as we said, less than mid-teens percentage of all of retail.
It's interesting. It's uh, so when you think about the Amazon and, uh, of, of the world, mm -hmm. how much have they gone into, or how much of their business is apparel versus just buying gadgets and stuff? Right. Like that? I think they're increasing. I certainly know that they're increasing their apparel assortment. I mean, there's been different players who have sized it, but they are going, I think, into more basics. Um, but again, the risk to brands when Amazon brings in a private label, in my view, is that they have the placement. They can put their brands top of mind. And you see that also, I think, with like supplements and they have private label across the board. So I think that's a risk. I don't think for the high end or really branded product that Amazon's private label is going to push it out. Okay, this is totally off topic, <laughs> and I'm gonna. This is gonna be absolutely a wild card that you're gonna have to deal with, Seema. Okay. Hudson Yards is yes. opening this week, and it's yes. going to be a retail hub with lots of new brick and mortar retail. Yes. Do you think that New York City can absorb a huge chunk of additional retail brick and mortar? I think if you have enough food and stuff, you'll get the traffic in there, but. I don't know that it's going to really drive up the sales. Also, just in my opinion, it's pretty far west. And as a person who builds my life around the train and stuff, I feel like it's a little <laughs> bit far to go. And we already have, you know, the Time Warner Center. So I'm not sure that it's necessary, but if they have a good enough experience, they'll at least get the traffic, you know, for food and things like that. Seema Shah, Senior Consumer <laughs> Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you so much for being Thank here uh, with us. It's always time to talk donuts, and here to talk donuts with us uh, is the very best person or people to talk about it with us, Buzzy Godold and Nancy Godold. Buzzy Godold, of course, uh, runs Cougar Capital. He left Wall Street uh, and and is still managing money, but he was the uh, super trader running Herzog Hein Godold uh, before it was sold to uh, Merrill Lynch in 2000. He founded his own uh, donut shop, and he is here uh, with Nancy, who is, of course, the manager of a new Donut Pub because Donut Pub is expanding. Uh, Buzzy, let's start with you. Thank you so much for being here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. First, can you just give us a refresher in how you went from Wall Street to Donuts, back to Wall Street, back to Donuts again, and are now expand expanding well, in it? Actually, it started with Donuts long before Wall Street. I think I started Well, I could backtrack. I, I, I had Wall Street for maybe a few months, got fired for my first job, fired for my second job, and in 1961-ish, went into the donut business with my brother. And 1968-ish, Wall Street, my brother decided to go back to Wall Street. Things had perked up. We sold off four stores. That we, we had four stores. We sold off three. I wanted one. He went back to Wall Street. I would bake in the morning, take the train, go down, and just kind of hang around, post his positions, offer the job, and that was it. So from 68 to 2000, I was at Herzog. So Nancy, so now you're expanding, right? We're expanding Donut Pub, right? So tell us about that. Yeah, so we're opening um, the second location since 1968 um, on Astor Place and Broadway. Uh, so I'm super excited to be involved and to be continuing the legacy. So how is the donut business in, in general? Are people now health conscious, no yes, processed foods? Yes, people are health conscious, but they still eat donuts. People still eating donuts? So 2018... We're business 54 years at the end of 2018. It was the best year we've ever had. And why is that? Do you think what, What's changing? Do you guys do you something know, I different? Think, or? I think people enjoy an inexpensive treat that puts a smile on their face, and donuts are back in vogue, and we have become a destination. So on weekends, you'll see people from Japan and Germany and Holland, basically all over the world and all over the country. It's a destination point, and the product is a great product. We bake three times a day. It's always fresh. 
So Nancy, where is the uh, the new location and what's the clientele that you're looking for? So the new location is Astor Place in Broadway. So um, it's going to be a super busy area, a lot of students from NYU and Pratt and the new school. So we're hoping to get um, a younger clientele and some more college students in the store. You know, Buzzy, I want to ask you something about the connection between Wall Street and donuts. Is there one? <laughs> You know, business is business, and I learned how to run a brokerage firm by running a donut shop, and there's very little difference. You've got clients in both. You want to serve them. You want them to leave, whether they're buying or selling a million shares of, of a security or whether they're buying a dozen donuts. You want them to leave there saying, this was the right place I went to. So it's all about product and service, and I learned how to do that in the donut shop. So Nancy, as you guys think about you're opening up this new store at Astor Place, what's the competition like with the big donut national chains and things like that? Do you try to put a store where there isn't another donut store? So there's actually a story about how a couple of Dunkin' Donuts opened uh, next to the original location of okay. the Donut Pub, and they've since left, which is good <laughs> for us. But I think we're pretty different from the like huge chain stores where everything is baked fresh on the premises. All of our donuts are hand cut. Um, so in that way, we're still very old-fashioned, and I think people appreciate that authenticity and that freshness. Buzzy, am I correct in thinking, so you were the main baker. You, you were the one who actually made the donuts? Well, back in the day, back I, did, in the day? I, I did baking. I dressed the donuts, which was putting the icing, filling the jelly, etc. Yes. So uh, what's your favorite donut? Black or white Boston cream. Okay, and uh, <laughs> right now, so how do, you, how do you divvy up your day now between managing money and, and making donuts? Well, the only thing I do with, with donuts. donuts is on Saturday morning, if I'm in town, I stop by the donut shop, I have a cup of coffee with the guy who manages, I critique the chocolate may not be shiny enough or he has a new idea for a new donut, that's my involvement. Uh, now that we've got a new store coming, I've been involved in the construction, which is the fun part for me, and then after that, I'll turn it over to Nancy, and uh, our manager. Do you actually make money from it, or is it uh, something that is enjoyable to do? We actually now do make money from it, yes. <laughs> no, so, the, re the reason uh, yeah, I ask is yeah. it's, it's, like it's tough to make yeah, money right it is. now. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Any kind of retailer. Well, Buzzy, I, I have to ask you. So you sold your specialist firm to Merrill Lynch at 2000. Um, top of the market, it sounds like to me. I remember 2000 kind of peaking in March, so hopefully that worked out. Um, what is the state of the specialist business today? Are there specialists left I think they're a specialist, but it's not a business anymore. I, I think it kind of topped out shortly after we sold. Between decimalization, limit order protection, uh, electronics, yeah, so, et cetera, it, right, it is It's all electronic, business. right? You know, when, when we made markets, there were spreads. So theoretically, you could make some money on a spread. Now the spreads are a penny, and things trade in between that penny. It's just not a business. So what, I mean, so again, most of the trading today is electronic. It's off, off the exchange. So are there... How many, do you happen to know offhand how many specialists are left on the New York Stock Exchange? I don't, but I can't imagine it's anything like what it was in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, right. 80s. Yep. So as you manage your own money, given your extensive experience in markets, where are you seeing the opportunities right now? Well, you know, it's a market of stocks, which is an old kind of saying, but it's true. It's not a stock market. So there's, there's opportunities always, and whether it's biotech, whether it's technology, whether it's retail there's always opportunities so nancy getting back to the topic at, at hand donuts what are some of the best-selling donuts right now um that coming out of your store 
Um, so I think the classic donuts are always top sellers, like glazed Boston cream. We do a black and white Boston cream with half vanilla icing, half chocolate. Um, and then the croissant donuts, which are a sort of recent addition. Those are huge wait, sellers wait, 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 as well. Wait. Croissant donuts? Yeah. You're basically doing everything in your power not to say cronut, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was very well we done. We're not allowed to say cronut. Literally? That's, that's, that's trademarked? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll say yeah. it for you. Cronuts, croissant donuts. <laughs> give me a break. Uh, just real quick, Nancy. I mean, how many people are actually worried about, you know, calories and, and health? Or uh, are we moving to a phase that's, that's different in a different sense where people are basically saying, uh, they want to be more gourmand. They want to support or be in, involved in an experience in a local shop. I think that um, people are super health conscious, but they also appreciate these sort of small, like uh, luxuries of having once in a while, you know, a sweet treat. So I think you know it's a combination of both, and I think people appreciate um, how fresh our product is. Um, so maybe it makes them feel a little bit less guilty about it. That's a great story. Uh, Buzzy Goodell and Nancy Goodell. Uh, Nancy's a VP and manager of the new Donut Pub opening up on Astor Place. And Buzzy's the CEO of Cougar Capital and founder of Donut Pub way back in the day. Thanks so much uh, for coming in and joining us. I don't know about you, Lisa, but I mean, I, I'm going to head down to the 14th Street and take a look because I haven't someone, been to this. Someone just tweeted at me, uh, do they have diet donuts? I'm going to answer that. No, Mm-mm. that doesn't happen. Oh, actually... All diet donuts. Oh, Buzzy says they're all <laughs> diet donuts. There you go. Interesting. Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 crashed over the weekend, killing all 157 people on board. Africa's biggest carrier decided not to use its 737 MAX 8 planes until further notice, while China and Indonesia also grounded 737 MAX jets. So to get the latest on this developing story, let's bring in uh, George Ferguson. George is a senior aerospace defense and airline analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from Bloomberg Intelligence HQ in Princeton, New Jersey. George, thanks for joining us. It seems like, um, you know, the stock is bouncing back a little bit down about 6%. It had been down about 13% earlier in the day. Uh, How material is this growing issue with the 737 MAX to the company? So, look, anytime anything happens to uh, the 737, to a 737, it's important to Boeing because it's the most important program. Uh, accounts for over 30% of revenues, probably over 35% of operating income. But I think what we're going to find out here is that um, you know, Boeing has made some changes to this jet since uh, the, the previous version, the NG. They pushed the engines forward and they've, they've changed the physics a little bit. And when they did that, they changed some of the program uh, that the com- a computer on the airplane that that helps ensure that the pilot doesn't pull the airplane up too fast and stall the wing. And so I think what we're going to find out is um, we're still uh, Boeing still not getting enough training into the uh, into the market for pilots to understand that and and disable that. Uh, so I think this is going to end up being a, a training issue. Well, I but, think at the but, end of but hold on a second, George. If it's a training issue. That's actually, that could go back to Boeing and, and, and Boeing's liability, because wasn't that part of Boeing's push here, uh, that this was not a, a craft, an aircraft that required substantial increasing in, in, in training for pilots just to reduce the cost and better com- to compete with uh, Airbus? Yeah, so I think there's going to be a, a debate about that, um, about whether or not this was Boeing's responsibility or the airline's responsibility, but I totally agree. I've heard from a number of pilots in the industry 
who were concerned that Boeing sort of soft-pedaled the training that uh, a pilot needed to get to transition to the MAX because they want to make the, the NG, which is the previous version, and the MAX look like very similar airplanes in an airline's fleet, and they want to minimize the training between the two. So, George, at this early stage, is there any sense of the exposure to Boeing? Yeah, you know, we're always, we're always sort of quite sensitive about that, uh, given that lo- lives are lost here. But, um, I mean, airline crashes happen on occasion. They don't, uh, they don't put those companies out of business. You know, I, I think that attorneys would probably sit down and think about how much every life on the airplane is worth. I sort of hate to get too macabre on this, but you could find 5 or $10 million a person could be a liability. Boeing may have some insurance policies to help cover some of that. It's nothing that would, uh, and Boeing has $10 billion in the balance sheet. I think it's nothing that would, uh, that would uh, put the company out of business. Well, it doesn't have to be putting the company out of the business. I mean, it's the biggest, uh, it's the biggest share in, in, in the Dow index. I mean, it just has to go down a substantial amount. There's also a question, of course, reputational risk, as well as whether uh, a nation like China, which accounted for 20% of the orders, I believe, of this new 737, uh, if they could use this as an excuse to reduce the number of aircraft that they uh, order from Boeing for whatever reason, whether it be that they want to uh, reduce their exposure to U.S. companies or, or what have you. I think there could be agreed, Lisa. I think there's, there's the potential that some of that could be going on in the backdrop because I would note that the largest operator of the airplane is Southwest. They fly 34 of them by my last count. They're flying them every day. They're working fine in the fleet. Um, you know, and, and I would say the U.S. and Europe, uh, we haven't seen any of those regulators come in and try to temporarily ground the airplane. So it seems to me like the, the biggest, uh, the most safe markets in the world have deemed the airplane is good to go. And so, yeah, so there may be a little bit of negotiation behind the scenes here from, from airlines in Indonesia or in China uh, that might give them some wiggle room to take some orders off the book. It's, frankly, I think the Chinese probably need the airplane flow to, to grow their, their airline industry as much as they want to. Um, look, there's only, I think, you know, I looked, there's probably 30 or 40 of these flying inside of China right now. So it's not, it's not a huge uh, ask for them to pull them out of the fleet temporarily. Uh, you know, so I don't think it's... Um, I don't know that they're going to shut off the pipeline in Boeing, but so George, maybe how about, they may use it to... So, so in, in the U.S. here, have we yet heard from the FAA about whether they want to temporarily ground these planes? Uh, so I've heard nothing at, at this stage. Um, you know, look, we, just, we went through the Indonesia crash, and, and I would remind everybody that the Indonesia crash, the Lion Air crash, uh, I think what we've learned so far was that an angle of attack indicator wasn't properly maintained and the pilot wasn't fully trained on how to shut off this nose over computer uh, control. So I wouldn't see anything from that would lead me to believe that the FAA would want to restrict flights for the 737 MAX. Uh, And look, they've been looking at that data since the Lion Air crash occurred, right? The FAA has been looking at that and they haven't grounded the airplane. So again, I I think that we won't see a grounding uh, out of this crash. George Ferguson, thank you so much for being with us. George Ferguson, Bloomberg Intelligence, senior aerospace defense uh, and airline analyst, talking, of course, about the tragic Boeing MAX 737 uh, crash, which took the lives of nearly 200 people, crashed in Ethiopia. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Bruce Linton just walked into our interactive broker studios in a fantastic mood, as he should, uh, because his company, Canopy Growth, shares up more than 70% so far just this year. They have been absolutely on a tear. We are talking marijuana. We are talking, of course, the company uh, that Constellation Brands bought a share of and that last week announced a business partnership with television personality and lifestyle authority Martha Stewart. Uh, Very much the rage. uh, One of the biggest and uh, arguably most ambitious cannabis companies in the United States. Bruce joining us here uh, as the CEO here in our 1130 studio. So Bruce, first, I just want to start with the Martha Stewart Association here. What is the business partnership exactly? Uh, just please explain. Yeah, no, and I thought that bringing was great. You didn't actually use any pot puns. I thought you were going to talk about the stock high or something. So that was very well done. I think well that's done. been tired. It's, you know, I I'm going to give a new that. t-shirt, a t-shirt to anyone who can come up with a new one of those. And I don't, I don't think I'm going to hand out any t-shirts. But this um, is a real business. It's an awesome they, we, business. We can, we can it, move away from the yeah. puns to this is real business. Well, and what's happened is people needed puns when it was uh, uncomfortable. Now what it is is more than a curiosity. It's a real business, which is why you're going to name like Martha Stewart coming by. And what Martha saw uh, is about three years ago, first we associated with Snoop. And it was his request, he reached to us because he saw us doing brand right, Tweed. And then we worked with him for about two and a half years and we got to know Martha. And Martha's on-ramp is really about wellness, health, uh, advising us on how we could actually focus on animal care products, which would incorporate CBD. And where we can do all that work in America is right here in New York State. Because New York State figured out when the Farm Act passed, how to create state-level regulations that are very welcoming to business. And I, as a business, don't need a tax break. I need good policy. And so it kind of makes me show up without having my hand out because I just want to get to work. That was a very yes. subtle dig at Amazon. Yes. Did I do that? I, I, was that? that. If I was subtle in any way, I apologize for being subtle. <laughs> so interesting. I see. Your business is all in Canada now, is that right? No. So what, what it started in Canada, but um, I can say as a proud Canadian, Canada is a very good place to be from. Yep. And if you stay there, you, you, there's only 36 million of us. Right. So we started there using the public policy, research, intellectual property development, and now we're in more than a dozen countries, any place that it's federally legal. So in the U.S. Federally legal, okay. In the U.S., we're only pursuing CBD, where it's governed federally, but in Germany. What, uh, to define CBD? So CBD is um, one of the two primary measured ingredients in both cannabis and in hemp. Okay. And what CBD uh, is associated with is like neurological calming. So if you think of a Parkinson's patient, they have many symptoms. One of them's shaking. CBD appears to be effective in diminishing the shaking, but if they need to deal with pain, anxiety, maybe they need THC. So CBD comes principally from hemp. Hemp looks like marijuana. It's a big plant. But when you do it in the U.S. the right way, as it's going to happen now, you extract the CBD, you end up with this protein, which is very digestible. So now we're getting this protein available, and you end up with a fiber that could be very uh, disruptive or impactful on places that do cotton. And so there's a whole bunch of things that happen when you let the government create a policy so you can actually not break a law and use a plant. All right, so there's a lot of optimism around cannabis and uh, the entire industry around it. And certainly that's been reflected in the amount that your shares have surged. Canopy shares up nearly 600% since the end of 2016. A lot of people have been saying that there is a bubble in pot Mm -hmm. stocks. I'm wondering, uh, do you think, are you concerned about how much your stocks have gone up given the fact that there is still so much uncertainty about the policy level of marijuana? Yeah, I would say um, my concern is 
more for the portfolio of stocks in the sector than ours specifically, right? So we have a lot of capital and we're using that capital to do a lot of research. We have over 140 patent families that we put together. We've got a huge facility that we're just finishing construction that will launch the first real beverages driven by cannabis. So don't think beer, think tweed and tonic. Um, think very low dosage, no calories, uh, always standard, uh, reasonably easy to sip and experience versus have a drink and wait 40 minutes. So this is going to be you know, that kind of impact. So what you're having is a company that's creating a lot of depth of value when prohibition ends and patents can be made. But then you have a lot of folks who feel this could be a terrific get-rich scheme. And so there's a lot of announcements. I, I think the way I like to term it is there are several businesses in this sector and a whole bunch of companies. Um, so right. investors should be cautious to find the business and the company. Well, Bruce, how about just, just crossing the Bloomberg terminal this morning was a headline that Harvest Health and Recreation is acquiring closely held Verano Holdings for about $850 million in the largest U.S. pot deal. Uh, do you expect more consolidation in the cannabis business? Yeah, I think there's going to be two things. There's going to be disintegration. So a whole bunch of companies that are just throwing stuff around aren't going to be bought. They're going to disappear. Those would be the really sad ones. And then there's going to be some consolidation. And the reason for that is um, we're running clinical trials. We're chatting off here about you know having 500 long-term care facility uh, elders who will be on cannabis as an alternate to a lot of the other medicines. Running these trials creates intellectual property, but it's also a burden. And if you're a little company, are you going to plan how we are really dominant three years from now? Not likely. So that's why you're going to see consolidation. Interesting. Bruce, thank you very much. Uh, Bruce Litton, founder, chairman, and CEO of Canopy Growth Corporation, Simple CG CGC, uh, based in Smith Falls, Ontario, but joining us here in a Bloomberg 1130 Studios. We could talk about this industry all day. We could. Honestly, I, I find it so interesting. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.